0: We are looking uh, during these next few weeks at the theme of sharing our faith with friends and family and we're going to begin another Alpha Course um, in early September and there's some very attractive Alpha Course invitations that we've now got available for you. It's going to be uh, at Angus and Janice Ross's home. And uh, we're very much looking forward to this. Alpha courses have blessed so many people and have been the means of many coming to faith. If you don't know about Alpha, it's based around food, about around conversation, and around some excellent videos presenting the Christian faith for those from a very non-church background. So if you know folk who would welcome that, do take a leaflet and do uh, pray and invite them. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, the second of the two readings that Catherine has just read. If you want to follow, then please turn back to that passage, and I want to pray as we begin. Lord, thank you for our life together this morning, for bringing us to this place at this time. Lord, just quieten our minds now that we will be truly receptive to your living word. Pray that your Holy Spirit will interpret it to our own lives and help us to live worthy of the Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on any estimation, the Apostle Paul was an outstanding evangelist, and church planter. In little more than 10 years, the decade from AD 47 to AD 57, Paul and his colleagues had successfully planted Christian communities in no less than four of the major provinces of the Roman Empire, in Galatia and Macedonia, in Achaia and in Asia. Now, that being the case, one of the startling features of the letters of the apostle is that there is almost no focus at all on how we are meant to do personal or church evangelism. That is not to say that Paul wasn't passionate about it. He talks to his young colleague, as some of you will remember, to Timothy about not neglecting the work of an evangelist. He writes to the Ephesians about the gifts of apostle and evangelist. He says famously to the Corinthians, I became all things to all people that by any possible means I might save some. He spent his life preaching, persuading. But what is singularly absent in his writings is any talk of church programs, outreach plans, how-to strategies, evangelism training. I maybe have to be corrected, but I don't really think there is a record of him praying for lost people, though I'm sure he did it all the time. So what was Paul's focus well, one of the best ways of catching Paul's heart, indeed the heart of any believer, is to listen to them pray. And we can do that by reading the many prayers that often introduce typically the letters of Paul. And Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 that Catherine has just read is a superb example of that. First century Colossi. Was a city that had seen better days. It was situated on the Lycus Valley near Leodicea, in the Roman province of Asia, modern day Turkey. At one time, it had been a, a, a key uh, stopping off place on the trade route between Sardis and Ephesus, but now the city had been eclipsed by cities like Laodicea and Hierapolis. But Paul did not ignore this slightly down-at-heel town. And it seems that while he was working in Ephesus in his third missionary journey, he sent a mission team to this town. It was led by Epaphras, who, if you look at verse 7, he beautifully describes as our dear fellow-servant, And since then, this church in Colossae had grown. And now, some years later, Epaphras returns with news of what has happened in in, in Colossae. And in turn, Paul responds with this eloquent letter that we have before us today. And the letter begins with thanksgiving, so typical of Paul. Grateful is Paul for the genuine faith and love of these young believers, a faith and love, he says, that has its foundation in the sure hope of salvation. Equally, Paul blesses God for what has happened in Colossae and how indeed that has been replicated around the world. So in verse 6, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you. The gospel is the good news that people of all nations, all races, all social classes can, in the words of verse 11, be rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Paul is passionate about evangelism, but look how this passion is channeled. And so to my first point. Paul's primary concern. And that focus comes to light as Paul begins in verse 9 and 10 to now pray for the continuing work of this church. Look at verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will Through all spiritual wisdom and understanding, or as translated here, through all the understanding and wisdom that the Spirit gives, so that what you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. The phrase has a very distinctive Jewish feel to it. Literally, it is to walk worthily of God the Lord. And Paul's primary concern for these Colossian believers is not that they engage creatively with their community, though I'm sure he would wish that, not that they would contextualise the gospel well, though I'm sure he would wish that, not that they have attractive presentations, but simply that the quality of the lives of every believer is worthy of Jesus, who has done so much. Ordinary Christians, in ordinary walks of life, in a very ordinary town, Colossae has been described as the least important of the cities that Paul wrote to, committed to living extraordinary lives. And that idea dominates so much Of Paul's thought. If you look at these texts behind me, you'll see how this becomes a theme throughout so many of his letters. So here he is appealing to the church in Rome as Phoebe arrives carrying, no doubt, the letter of Romans. And he says to her, accept Phoebe in a way worthy of his people. In Ephesians 4, which Steve helpfully introduced at the beginning of this service, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In Philippians, Paul pleads, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And to the church in Thessalonica, he writes, for you know how we dealt with you. And then goes on, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. And we all know what this looks like. Three weeks ago, as Usain Bolt reluctantly relinquished his world 100-metre record to Justin Gatlin, the crowds in the London Stadium, rightly or wrongly, Struggled to celebrate. It was a phenomenal achievement by Gatlin, 35 years old, running 9.92 second 100 meters, beating the unbeatable Bolt and his young 21 years old colleague Coleman. But his two doping suspensions, although well past, although legitimate and brilliantly a winner, were plaguing still his life. And so a subdued and a somewhat unconvinced crowd cheers him to victory. We're still trying to lay foundations for making friends and making disciples. And for Paul, all our talk about sharing our faith there is absolutely no substitute for consistency and integrity to our lives. It is so basic and so crucial. What was it that won so many in the Roman Empire to following Jesus? It was the emergence of a remarkable bunch of ordinary people who were committed to imitating Jesus, who loved their enemies, who prayed for their persecutors, who cared for the poor, who welcomed slaves and masters and Jews and Gentiles around the same table, who were salt and lit light as Jesus called them to be. We know, for example, that by the year 250 AD, the Christian community in Rome alone was supporting 1,000 500 destitute people every day, living lives worthy of Jesus. And so important is this for Paul, that he lingers over this primary concern, and he takes time to spell it out. And I want us just to take a moment to look at the four descriptive phrases that flow from this Central statement. So here's the first. Look at the end of verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work. I was pleased to hear Cooper Baptist being praised this week, who, when introduced to a Syrian refugee family, there are a few now in Cooper, welcomed this family with admirable open arms and practical generosity. The first way we live lives worthy of the Lord is to bear fruit in every good way. And how I want to encourage you that so many of you here are known for your kind deeds. Supporting charities like Mihai's, and we have the leaflet which I'd like you to read, in the bulletin this morning, offering lifts, visiting care homes, taking young people out for pizzas, opening your homes, giving to storehouse. We're sadly going to have to say goodbye to Letitia and a few others this morning uh, from Africa. A few weeks ago, I drove to church and Fallu and Jean and others who live near us were walking to church. And as I drove by, I waved to them. And half an hour later, they walked into Kilrimand School very tired and said, thank you for being such a good model of good works. (laughs) How could we miss you? (laughs) Yes. So, secondly, growing in the knowledge of God, end of verse 10. It's been my observation over the years that there is something deeply attractive about Christians who have been following Jesus for years, who are still obviously growing and learning, still excited about reading the Bible and discovering new things. Tom Wright, in his little commentary, points out the intriguing spiral nature, as he calls it, of this prayer. So here is Paul praying That they may increase in the knowledge of God's will. Why? So that they may live lives worthy. Why? So that they may increase in the knowledge of God. It's this sort of spiral going up. Understanding fuels holiness, says Tom Wright. And holiness fuels understanding. The attractiveness of keeping on growing in the knowledge of God. Third, verse 11 that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have endurance and patience. We live lives worthy of the Lord who endured the cross when we ourselves, in the face of difficulty, are known for our endurance and our patience. And fourthly, giving thanks to God joyfully giving thanks to the Father. There are few things more attractive than people who have an underlying, irrepressible joy and gratitude. And for Letitia and our African friends here, what a wonderful model of that you are, smiling and cheering even when I drive past you and do not give you a lift. So here is Paul's primary Concern. Way back in 1980, there was a large international conference in Thailand on world evangelization, produced by the Lausanne Movement. And the title of that conference was, How Shall They Hear? But it was observed, as this mission conference went on, the actual question that everybody really wanted to ask was, what do they see? As people look at us, what do they see? As John Stott said, we will never be audible until first we are credible. Notice, before we move on, that Paul is hardly wanting to depress his friends in Colossae. How on earth can we match up to lives that are lived worthy of the Lord Jesus who died for us? Well, notice how again and again Paul's words are prefaced by wonderful promises of God's provision. Look at verse 9. We continually ask God, ask God to fill you with the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit brings. And even more dramatically in verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, which literally runs being empowered by the power of the might of God's glory. There's this piling up of synonyms divine power, divine strength, divine might. This is the resource available to us this morning to live this life worthy of the Lord. Indeed, the whole central point of Colossians, as many of you know, is that Paul is deeply concerned about this young church being misled. It seems a certain faction, whose scholars have never really been able to identify, were suggesting that although it is important to trust in Christ as saviour, there's still more beyond Christ. There are further divine insights, further mysteries, further revelations, further mystical experiences that you really need to be an adequate and true Christian. And Paul's passionate retort throughout this whole letter is that in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone... We have everything we need for living life and for living godly lives, for salvation and for worthy living. Later on, he will speak of Christ beautifully in whom are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ, end of chapter one, is the creator of the whole cosmos and the redeemer who has truly qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people, who has rescued us and delivered us and forgiven us. And so we can be utterly confident in his resource to live lives worthy of him. And then secondly, and simply, not only Paul's primary concern, but their particular challenge. We've no idea, really, from this letter, what those early believers in Colossae were having to face. Later on, Paul does talk about those who seem to be judging and belittling them. He implies a strong pull to their pagan past that they need to resist. He recognises how tough it was for converted slaves to work wholeheartedly. He hints that they need lots of encouragement in lots of ways. What is clear is the assumption that to live new lives, different and worthy of Christ. In the full day gaze of a skeptical and hostile world, was not something that would come automatically. And so, again, if you look at verse 9 and 10, which is very much our text, he prays that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that God's Spirit brings. There would be no need to pray this prayer if it was just all very straightforward, but it wasn't. It would be tricky. It would require tough choices. It would demand hard ethical decisions. It would involve them getting their hands dirty in a pagan world. It would involve them thinking through what are the real challenges in our culture to live differently for Christ. They needed God's wisdom and that's exactly what we need. Later on in this letter, in chapter 4, verse 5, he says these beautiful words. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone, their particular challenge and ours too. And here is the rub for all of us this morning. It is relatively uncontentious that we need to live winsome and attractive lives for Jesus. It is relatively painless to live out that life in the protective confines of a church community. But for all of us, the real challenge is how exactly to shine with the light of Christ in the sceptical, morally complex and politically hostile world that God has placed us in. Fiona has kindly just lent me the story of Stephen Griffith, whose uh, children many of us know, Amy and Josh, students here. And uh, Steve was brought up in Zimbabwe by his parents. And I haven't got very far, Fiona, in reading this book. But I was struck the other night reading about Steve Griffith's dad... Peter Griffiths. He was converted in his late teens in South Wales. He was working as an industrial chemist in Swansea Steelworks, analysing the steel. He and his mates regularly made up the results to save time. Such was South Wales steel. When Peter became a Christian, In order to live a life worthy of his saviour, he immediately stopped making up results in his chemist's laboratory. And he had to work late into the night to do his work for the first time properly. And all his mates were furious, because they were all going to be found out. You know how that feels, don't you? How tricky it is to live in a compromised workplace, to live with integrity as a follower of Jesus. Tim Farron has felt that pressure. We feel that pressure. It's very easy for me to stand up and say live lives worthy of the Lord, but we do it in a particular challenging context in today's world. And there is no Alpha Course, though I am so keen on Alpha Courses and want you to bring your friends. There is no church sermon. There is no brilliant lecture on the Christian faith that will ever substitute for ordinary Christians like us living lives differently in the challenging culture in which we find ourselves here. We will ruffle feathers. We will find it difficult That, like Peter Griffith, we will build respect as we follow Jesus. Some of us here have been reading through the book of Deuteronomy in a little prayer group. And it struck me afresh recently how much the nation of Israel lived on a very public stage. All that happened in their history was open to the surrounding nations to see, rather obvious, but it suddenly hit me. They were an open book to the world of their time. The nations saw Israel at their best, and they saw Israel at their worst. They saw that when God blessed them and brought victory, and they saw when God punished them. Israel was called to live a life worthy of their covenant God. And that's why Solomon prayed as he did in our first reading, so that all the nations of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none other. And we too are called to live lives as open books here in St. Andrews and beyond, to deliberately let our light shine so that St. Andrians can see our good works and give glory our Father in heaven. Last week I ended with a rather random illustration of an early 19th century free church minister called Alexander Fraser. And I'm going to end with an even more random illustration. Such is my geeky like that I spent some of my summer holiday reading reading a series of lectures on 18th century Baptists, but that's another story. And one of the fascinating lectures I read was of a woman called Martha Gurney, who was part of a a, a very lively group of particular Baptists in London. And of course, at that time, one of the great issues of the day was the slave trade. And Martha Gurney came from a privileged background. Uh, She was a printer, she was an author, she was a publisher. She was an influential friend of many of the Quakers involved in the abolition movement. And uh, as you see from this uh, 18th century pamphlet, this is one of many that she published uh, with a rather (laughs) attractive title about the criminality of slavery and so on. And. One of the really fascinating things that she did was that she built a model of a slave ship and she deliberately portrayed the absolute horror of how the African folk were brought across. The appalling conditions that led to so many of them dying. And she had this display in her shop window, in Holborn, in London. And it became iconic, like Wedgwood's statue of the praying slave. It became a national icon, and it attracted huge hostility, even from some of her Baptist friends, who were complicit in the slave trade, in Bristol, in in London at the time, and yet brought enormous energy and support to Wilberforce and the movement. Paul prays that the Colossian Christians would live lives worthy of the Lord. That was his primary concern. And it should be ours. And the challenge is to do that in the shop window like Martha Gurney to let our light shine where we are however difficult and however much hostility may come our way and Paul's prayer to this little church and my prayer and our prayer is that God will give us understanding to do this well to do it with grace and to do it with joy and to do it with compassion and to do it with the power that his spirit brings. This is the very foundation of what it is to be gospel people.